Welcome to Anarchast. Today we have Stefan Molyneux of Freedom Main Radio. It's the largest philosophical discussion on the internet. He's done over 1,800 podcasts, which makes our two podcasts look very unmasculine and impotent. How are you doing, Stefan? Great, Jeff. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, it's, it's totally my pleasure. And, and this time I get to ask the questions. So uh, I can, uh, it's, uh, it's all easy for me this time. I get to just sit back and hear what you have to say. And I'm really interested to hear what you have to say. Um, uh, in general, is there a, uh, for example, um, I'm very curious. You've never really talked to, or I've never heard a podcast where you've talked much about your background, how you got into anarchism and these sort of things. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about uh, your uh, journey to anarchism? Sure. I mean, I started out as a good old-fashioned Canadian socialist cub. Uh, I, I grew up in England. I was born in Ireland. I grew up in England. And uh, then I came to Canada when I was about 11 with my family. And uh, yeah, I thought socialism was, you know, the usual taking care of people, being nice to people and helping the poor, the sick, the old and the disadvantaged and so on. And that all seemed like a very good idea. And then a friend of mine, uh, who's now an economics professor, got into the band Rush. And uh, I was into sort of darker and gloomier stuff. I was more of a Floyd fellow, but he was into Rush. And uh, Rush, the, the drummer, is very influenced by, uh, by Ayn Rand. And so he passed me over a copy of The Fountainhead, which I devoured, I'm pretty sure, in two days. And I just found it like an electrical butterfly having an epileptic attack on my frontal lobes. It just really woke up dormant parts of my brain. And it's a very, very powerful and heady, heady mixture. I think I was 15 or 16 uh, at the time. And through there, I got into libertarianism and uh, all of that kind of stuff. And I did that for uh, an, embarrassing, <laughs> an embarrassing amount of time, sort of in hindsight. I'd never been exposed to any anarchic thinking at all. Uh, I guess I'd read a few of the 19th century uh, Russian anarchists, but they were mostly leftists or, or sort of anarcho-communists. And uh, they didn't really hold much, much appeal to me. And uh, so I got into the Austrian School of Economics and I devoured more Rand and, and uh, Hayek and uh, Bastiat and all of these other great writers. And then the strangest thing happened. I was having a debate with someone at work. Uh, I hadn't really been, I, I was an entrepreneur for 15 years. I didn't really do much with philosophy or, or politics. And we were talking about um, the environment. And uh, this idea sort of came to me during the, the debate about how env the env environmental issues could be solved without the state. And I spent a lot of time in the environmental field as an entrepreneur. I knew it fairly well. And it was just like one of these, you know, again, one of these sort of blow your, your space station brain patterns out of orbit of your head. And from there, I sort of said, okay, well, if it could work for that. Because, you know, the magic answer is the government. Uh, how do we deal with uh, criminals? The government. Uh, how do we deal with the environment? The government. It's this magical answer. And uh, it doesn't actually solve anything. It's, it's, it's the worst kind of answer, which is an answer where you think you have an answer, but you don't actually have an answer. And so I started looking at ways in which voluntary insurance and free market associations uh, could solve really difficult and complex social problems like air pollution and uh, uh, real nasty, hardened criminality uh, and so on. And I just found that there really was no limit to this theory. Now, uh, as I later found out, uh, I was reinventing the wheel in six different ways from Sunday because, you know, great uh, anarchic theorizers had paved the way. And I think I had a few extra things to add, but uh, people like Mario Rothbard and so on had all uh, gone this way before and done some fantastic work in it. But it was all new to me. And so uh, I began to to take that approach. And it removed the fundamental challenge that the minarchist or the objectivist has, which is 
if the non-initiation of force is the moral absolute and the property rights are the moral absolute, then you can't have a government. I mean, you just can't. Uh, it's, um, uh, it's like being an atheist and saying you need God to move the solar system. These two things don't work together. So that was sort of my journey. And, and as I sort of began uh, podcasting and writing more and uh, wrote a couple of books on anarchy and all of that, and discussed it more and faced more critical questions from others and from myself. It just, I was such a reluctant anarchist. It was, it was a label I never ever imagined I would apply to myself. And uh, it is, uh, you know, it really was dig, dig kicking and screaming by the extreme demons of reason and evidence, if that makes any sense. Uh, yes, it's a lot of sense. Uh, it's really interesting to hear your background. Uh, so you, were you born in Canada or were you born somewhere else? No, I was born in Ireland, and uh, I grew up in England. I spent a little bit of time in South Africa, and uh, I've uh, I, I've lived in Canada for most of my adult life. Okay, because I was actually born in Canada, and I lived there till I was about thirty. About you can hear my accent right there. About thirty years old, and uh, uh, then I uh, decided that was enough of that, and I actually came from a completely different angle than you did. I uh, I. I, I never felt right in this socialist country, and and, and people who haven't lived there don't really know how it's very socialist, and it's very uh, there's a lot of really wrong ideas in their whole uh, culture and political structure and all that. Not to say that I hate Canada or anything like that, but the actual uh, a lot of the people there are very socialist, and they really believe a lot of what you just said about how the government needs to be involved, and and uh, Canada believes that more than almost uh, anywhere I've ever been, really, and it really wasn't the place for me. So it's interesting to hear that you came from a spot where you never thought you'd be an anarchist. Uh, I came from a spot where I just knew that whatever I was seeing every day made no sense to me. And I was just thrilled the day that I found the word anarchy or anarchist. And I said, well, that's me. And uh, thank God there's a name for it because I thought I was the only one out here. And uh, so that's a really interesting uh, uh, background on, on yourself. Um, uh, you, there's so many things I want to ask you just based on what you just said. One of them uh, is uh, we posted our first uh, Anarchist video just the other day and we had all these anarcho-communists anarcho on our website. Uh, making fun of us and saying we don't know what we're talking about and uh you know to me and it's i really want to ask you this question because you started with that left side anarchist and that's the sort of your understanding of where it came from i never was there and when i went there uh just because some people told me that that's where i should go uh it made no sense to me i'm like well if there's anarcho communists why aren't there anarcho-fascists or anarcho... You can be anarcho-anything if there's an anarcho-communist, in my opinion, from what I understand what anarchy is supposed to be, which is without a state uh, or without a ruler. Um, do you understand or can you explain to me or to our audience, uh, uh, does anarcho-communism make any sense at all to you? Well, no, uh, of course not. Uh, I shouldn't say of course not, like it's obvious, because there are some very, very intelligent anarcho-communists uh, who have a lot to say about the theory. But the way that I, what I love about anarcho-capitalism is that you have property rights, you have the non-aggression principle, and these are completely optional. They're voluntary. So if you and I and, uh, I don't know, 50 other people want to don white robes and, and uh, wave flashlights around for no particular reason and start some commune uh, in the foothills of Montana, we can do that because we can choose to not exercise our property rights. So what I love about anarcho-capitalism is its inclusion, right? So just because there are property rights doesn't mean that you have to exercise them. You can go into a contract with people where you give up your property rights. 
you can just, just decide not to exercise and hold everything and share everything in common and all that. So what I don't like about anarcho-communism is it doesn't allow for anarcho-capitalism. What I do like about anarcho-capitalism is it fully allows for anarcho-communism because you, what you want in society is a number of different ways of organizing society all competing for the best and most productive and that which makes people the happiest and it's the most sustainable and it's the best for children and brings pink rainbow unicorn dances to everybody who wants them. That, that's what you want. You don't just want compete competition in terms of goods and services. You want competition in terms of the structure of society and that, that kind of continual laboratory experiment is fully, fully acceptable and, and allowable and probably even encouraged within a, a society which respects property rights and the non-aggression principle. But I don't like that the anarcho-communists say that, you know, the exercise of property rights is, is wrong or bad. Because then what happens is somebody wants to exercise them and you're not allowed to do that. Whereas if somebody doesn't want to exercise property rights in an anarcho-capitalist society, no, it's fine. Nobody's going to stomp on your omelet if that's what you want to do. Yeah, and that's exactly what I think as well. It's so great to hear your perspective on it. And that, that actually explains a lot to me about what they're trying to say. I, I really didn't understand it. I, I didn't even know how to answer in the comments section because I, to me, it just is two contradictory terms. It's, you know, you might as well just pick two random terms and say that's what you are. And, you know, there's, there's no logic to it at all from what I can see. So that's great. Well, sorry, let me just, uh, let me just depend a little bit because sure. I think when you're, when you are um, faced with a really challenging intellectual paradigm, like socialism or, or like anarcho-communism or communism itself, I think it's usually worthwhile saying, well, how could it be appealing to people given that it doesn't make a lot of sense? Well, I think it's all pretty important to remember. And, and I know you have uh, kids. I have uh, a daughter. I mean, it's a communist paradise for her, <laughs> right? And, and your kids are not uh, working for their, uh, their room and board. And so we come, as children within the family structure, we are not coming at it from a mature uh, property rights uh, system. Right? That's something that you, you grow into. And so I've always sort of felt that people who look at you know, a big central authority that's going to do all this good for people and so on, are people who've never surmounted or, or grown out of the family paradigm. Because the family paradigm is very, very different uh, from the adult uh, paradigm. Right? There's, there's no stock market in the family. There's no uh, investment uh, within, between the kids. There's no competition. You don't just throw a T-bone on the ground and see who gets fed. I mean, there's, it, it is really a very sort of managed socialist paradise for the kids. I think if you don't outgrow that, if you don't recognize that that's for a certain phase in your life that you're really supposed to outgrow, then I think that these other ideals of the government as family, and really I think that's what people are talking about, which is why they get so offended when you say we can have a society without government. There's two things they think you mean. They think you mean you have a society without ethics and you have a society without uh, any order or any authority, and, and that's not true at all, right? And so, so I think that if we look at the degree to which people look at how society should be structured and have not outgrown the family paradigm, I think that's a fundamental confusion that people make. I think you can see this in the Venus Project as well, or the Zeitgeisters, that, you know, they kind of want robot mommies to bring them their, uh, their bottles, so to speak. And I think that's people who still have not made, had closure on, on a family system they grew up in. That's really interesting. And, uh, you know, that old saying that uh, conservatives want your, uh, the government to be your daddy, uh, the liberals want your the government to be your mummy, and uh, libertarians or anarchists just want to be treated like adults, and and that's really uh, interesting. And I'm starting to understand now why you tie in uh, a lot of um, uh, things about childhood into your whole philosophy. And uh, after we come back from this break, I want to ask you about that. We'll be right back. 
And we're back still with Stefan Molyneux of Freedom Main Radio. And it's a real pleasure to talk to Stefan. And uh, Stefan, I, I came across you about probably not even a year ago. And uh, you're one of the people who I saw, I think I forget the video exactly, but I think it was something along the lines of uh, something about your enslavement. Oh, the story of your enslavement. Yes, that's, my, um, that's my uh, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody and everything else I do <laughs> seems to be outtakes from B-sides. But yeah, that's my big, uh, big hit. Yeah, I saw that. And uh, right from there, I was like, oh, this is, I need more of this. And I started just... Googling or YouTubing uh, Stefan Molyneux for a number of days, which is what I did actually when I first uh, heard about the word anarchy, the first person I personally heard about. I've never actually read an Ayn Rand book. I have to admit that. Uh, um, I've uh, been against uh, paper books for a number of years. I'm, I'm a computer nerd, and I could never get it back in the old days in electronic form, so I refused to read it. That's a little bit of a quirk about me. I'm a bit of a computer nerd that way. But uh, so the first way that I found out about anarchism was uh, through a guy who you know named Doug Casey. And um, he uh, actually had just written a really short article on the Internet. And it was just really it was, it was just kind of a little tiny article. It didn't really mean much, but it was saying, don't be nice to customs border guard people. Uh, and I had been traveling at the time and I, I really uh, just uh, took a I just totally agree with everything he said. And from there, I just Googled Doug Casey for about a month straight. And so that's how I got into uh, that side of things. But when I saw your video, I, I knew right away that uh, you were definitely someone I had to pay attention to in this sphere. And then I went to your website. And I have to say, at first, I was a little confused. Uh, uh, the website is about childhood and about uh, philosophy. And it's, it's, it seemed to me a number of disparate items, uh, religion and um uh, and only just now, when you just talked in the last segment about childhood, did I see the connection you're getting at between uh, anarchy and, and family. You're basically saying that a lot of people just have never grown up from uh, being children. Is, is that generally how you've tied all this together? What's your general framework for all of this? Well, there's the old poetic line, the child is the father of the man. And I think that when we look at society as a whole, it's very easy to take it as you see it as a snapshot of people without a history, of adults walking around making rational decisions based on just being adults. That's not what the science indicates. The science indicates that childhood, our experiences within childhood, good, bad, and indifferent, have an enormous, enormous, enormous foundational impact on our thinking, on our uh, capacity to reason, uh, on our approach to relationships, on our big picture view of society. This is enormously influenced by, by our childhood histories. And unfortunately, it's most influenced by the stuff we can't even remember when the first couple of years of life. And if we don't look at the degree to which people's interactions as adults are shaped by their early experiences as children, then the world remains a kind of baffling mystery. Like, you know, taxation is theft is not a complicated algorithm to process. I mean, you may agree with it in terms of uh, it's good or it's bad, but the fact that taxation is the initiation of force is not really that hard to figure out. And like most people, when you talk about this, you think that's going to be a pretty easy thing. And you're going to talk about the pluses and minuses. But what happens, Jeff, is that you say taxation is theft and people go, you know, they just kind of like, you can see this, this spasm occur in their brain. 
And it took me a long time to figure this out. And I, um, I've done a lot of research in this. I've talked to a lot of subject matter experts, psychologists, and all that, that on my show. And I've done a whole series called The Bomb in the Brain, which people can get a hold of at fdrurl.com forward slash BIB. And, and in it, I trace the sort of science with, with an interview uh, with Dr. Vince Felitti, who's the head of the Adverse Childhood Exper- Experiences Study. And it's very, very clear that uh, people's capacity to reason is enormously, enormously diminished if they experience adverse childhood experiences. What, what happens is then they have prejudices, uh, which they're unconscious of. And you can see this in brain scans. This isn't just made up stuff, right? So someone comes co- across a new argument or a new piece of information. They experience anxiety right deep down in their amygdala. And then they make up a reason for that anxiety afterwards, that people experience anxiety or stress deep down in their brains. And then afterwards, they make up a reason why. So when you say to someone taxation is theft, it sets off alarm bells in their head, which they're not conscious of. And then the reasoning ex post facto, after the fact reasoning shows up, which is why you can't ever change people's minds. Because until you can address the core anxiety, you can't change people's minds. Because fundamentally, there's no mind to change yet. And so my goal has been, look, let's, let's think about what a society would look like if all children in the world were raised without aggression, without raised voices, without being hit, uh, without being terrorized, without threats of, of hell or, or punishments uh, aplenty. And it's pretty clear what we would see. What we would see is a massive reduction in things like drug addiction, promiscuity, um, a cigarette addiction, alcoholism would be down. <laughs> well, we'll get to your case in a moment. <laughs> But, um, but no, so there'd be much less criminality. If you look at the childhoods of political leaders, they're almost always incredibly dysfunctional. And so you'd be, there'd much less hunger for political power, much less criminality. The, the, the two things that seem to hold the state together in people's minds, which is this surging criminality and the need to clamp down and control it, uh, those two things would fade away. Uh, if children were raised peacefully and happily, and people would actually be able to accept rational and empirical arguments because they wouldn't be, uh, they wouldn't have these bombs of anxiety going off in their head based on early childhood experiences. So that's my approach. I hey, I could be right, I could be wrong. Uh, I don't believe that politics is how we're going to do it. Uh, I think that it is an evolution uh, in child rearing that we really need, and there's lots of evidence to show this that. Um, Countries which have banned uh, childhood uh, corporal punishment for children, and there have been a number of European countries in particular that have banned it, have much less, in, uh, much lower incidence of going to war. And they tend to be uh, more open to viewing people who, say, are addicted to drugs as uh, people with a problem that needs to be solved rather than criminals who need to be locked up and have the key thrown away. There's a lot of compassion that comes out of people who are raised peacefully, uh, or with, at least without corporal punishment. And that seems to be, I think, the way to go. Again, I could be wrong. Maybe, you know, Ron Paul will rescue us all, but uh, I don't believe that's the case. I think it's a multi-generational process of improving the way that we treat children. And from there, I think we will end up with a peaceful society where authority will be unsought by empty people who lust for power over others and will be viewed as unnecessary by people who face almost no threats to their persons and property from the criminal class that largely vanishes when children are treated well. That's interesting because I have come from a slightly different angle on it, but I'm very interested in your views and it makes a lot of sense. To me, it appears like most of the problems that we have today are because of the state. So we're coming from similar angles in that respect. Uh, Just the fact that people are raised basically from day one in the state, uh, Mm. put into indoctrination camps. The media is basically one and the same with the state. In many cases, they're told just the status angle from the 
pretty much the day they're born, and then they're given pensions from the government, uh, or they, they are right now, they won't be in the future. But uh, for, for me, the angle that I've always taken is all of these problems that of these people who can't see what's going on is, to me, I, I just consider them brainwashed because they've been raised in this artificial, non-free market system for most of their life. So it's very interesting to hear uh, that you think part of it is, isn't just that. You you believe that it's in how people raise their children also has a great effect on how people uh, are more open to seeing what's really going on in uh, when they become adults. Is that is that basically correct? Yeah, that is true. And I, I really wanted to to reinforce the point that you're making, Jeff. That uh, I don't believe that it's it, it is a circular system, right? So. Uh, you're absolutely right that the indoctrination that children receive in government schools fuels their addiction and belief in government. No question about that. There's absolutely, I mean, I completely agree with that. And the fact that rising tax rates uh, have caused so many families around the world, and particularly in the West, to end up with two parents working, and then you put your kid into a state daycare, uh, where, at least according to the research I've read recently, uh, at least here in Quebec in Canada, they have significant drops in language skills because children should be raised by their parents or at least one of their parents. I don't, I mean, it seems weird to even have to say that. Like that's some sort of radical thing. It's like saying married couples should live together. You know, uh, the parents should raise their kids. They shouldn't, ideally shouldn't put them in daycare unless there's, a, you know, some extreme necessity like, like illness or something. Yes, yeah, so Parents just, should raise their own kids. So, so I, sorry, I, want, I just want to point out that sure. yes, uh, the, the state and the healthy family are, to me, uh, exact opposites, and they are, they are at war. The healthier the family gets, the less power the state is going to have. And so it is in the state's interest to, to diminish and to undermine the family. And uh, certainly here in Canada, there have been billions and billions of dollars funded into some ri- pretty radical feminist groups, uh, which have said, you know, women can't be fulfilled unless they go out to work and so on. But that's really good for the state. I mean, it turns a non-taxable income, like raising kids and being a housewife, into a taxable income called being an employee, and it also places kids earlier and earlier and earlier into the tender arms of the state. And that makes the state even more powerful. So it is, it is a cycle. I mean, I think you're right. We need to be aware of what's happening on the state side. But I think we also need to be aware of its origins within the family. That's very interesting. We had a podcast just a few days ago with Oliver Westcott of anarchocapitalist.org live from London about the uh, UK riots. And uh, this being anarchist, uh, we were basically saying that those people rioting are anarchists. And I know you know that, uh, but I did see you put out your own video and it was excellent. I watched it and you took it from the, uh, I guess, both angles, the, the state and how it's affecting families and how it's making people have broken families in the UK. And you basically said that was the main uh one of the main causes for what was the the riots in going on in London and the UK. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, in, in the UK as a whole, there's been a... a pretty enormous shattering of the family over the last generation or two. And of course, in, in the black communities in particular, it's 50% of, of kids growing up without a father and a significant proportion of them growing up in households where they've never seen anyone work. And then they go to these terrible state schools. They live in these terrible government ghettos in government housing. Uh, it is all just wretched. And then they can't find jobs because taxes and regulations are so high that, um, I mean, one of the things that happens is the middle class likes to use the government to keep the poor from competing with them. And so it has these barriers to entry, uh, licensing and so on, that keeps the young people from being entrepreneurs and undercutting the, the older people. I mean, imagine if these kids were just allowed to go out 
and get jobs as plumbers if they were reasonable at it and people wanted them to do it rather than having to go through two or five or ten years or whatever it is of apprenticeship. So yeah, I think it is, it is really tragic. I mean, and this was all well foreseen. This is nothing, uh, I'm not particularly smart in this area. This was all predicted. Charles Taylor wrote about it uh, many years ago uh, that um, when you create a system where uh, you can have families with a guaranteed income without the traditional underpinnings of the family, right? So one person working and, and sort of some deferral of gratification in terms of having families later, then you're going to end up with this uh, with this kind of mess where uh, you can have kids as a job and the dad feels less obligation to stick around because the kids are going to be taken care of anyway, which means that the woman has to be less choosy about who she's having sex with or whether she's using protection and so on. So, yeah, it is a complete mess. Now, you know, not to say that these kids have no resp moral responsibility. They do. But I think we have to look at the statistics of where these things are occurring and um, look at the degree to which family breakdown has had a significant impact on the way that these kids have developed and their relationship to their society as a whole. Totally. Uh, I totally agree, as, as always. I don't think I ever really disagree with you. Uh, we're both basically seeing things the same way. Uh, when we come back, I just want to ask you one more question. I know you're a busy guy, and uh, I just want to ask you if how you see us moving towards a better world, what we, what we can all do personally to get there. So uh, we'll be right back in part three after this. And we're back with Stefan Molyneux of Freedom Main Radio. And uh, Stefan, it's been just insightful as always. I, I just want to basically ask you the, the question that I, I tend to ask a lot of anarchists to really see what's going on, see how much of the world has been destroyed by government and, and by the people who believe in government, unfortunately. Uh, again, it, it's the people who usually are the poorest and uh, who are the least educated who actually believe that these governments can, can help them. And, and it's really tragic, but hopefully through things like Free Domain Radio and uh, Anarchist and many others, and, and it's all cropping up all over the internet now, uh, we can uh, help the world get to a better place somehow because uh, you know, we, we both have families. Not that that even matters. I don't like that uh, statement that, oh, I've got a family. I've got to worry about the world. I, I still worry about the world. I'm still here. And even if I wasn't here, you know, we're, we're here at the moment. Let's try to make things better. So uh, tell me a little bit about how you think we might go forward in the next few years. I, I, I heard one of your comments. Uh, you basically, uh, I think it was at uh, one of the Liberty Conferences, you said we're probably looking at beyond our lifetimes to really see some of the big changes that we want to see. I'm a little bit more optimistic, but I want to hear your perspective on uh, uh, what can people do and, and is it possible to see any kind of real freedom and, and the, the uh, getting rid of the fallacy of the state from most people's mind any time in the near future? Yeah, I, I think that there is. I mean, there's a lot that we can do to bring freedom into our own lives. I sort of like to live like there's no government. I mean, I pay my taxes and uh, I obey the laws because I like this side of the jail cell. But, other, you know, I pay them their money and uh, like to live like there is no government. And that's as close as I can get. What I strongly, strongly urge people is to recognize that the non-aggression principle begins, uh, begins in the home begins in the home. It begins with your children. The non-aggression principle means no hitting. Uh, it means don't raise your voice, don't intimidate, don't threaten. Uh, because that, if, if children experience peaceful, uh, a peaceful life, a life without aggression when they're younger, what happens is when they first encounter the state, it'll be like you encounter somebody speaking a language you don't speak. Be like, I kind of get a sense of what they're talking about, but I have no idea of the content. 
Whereas if you, you know, are aggressive with your kids and, and you, you hit them and you bully them and you control them and so on, then when they go to public school, they'll be like, hey, I already speak this language. Hey, I'm, this is no huge change for me. And so in a sense, the most subversive thing that you can do, the thing that would change the most is to, to be the future for your children today, to be a, 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 to create for them an environment where they experience the non-aggression principle as axiomatic, like gravity, where they experience property rights, you know, you know, don't force them to share, let them have their property. Uh, and that way, when they grow up, that will be the language they speak, the language of peace, the language of negotiation, the language of property. And they will, of course, hear the language of statism, but it will sound like Klingon to the untrained ear or Klingon slash German choking on a steel wool hairball. It'll, it'll sound unpleasant is what I'm trying to say. So I think that's an important thing you can do. Of course, in your relationships, the non-aggression principle is very important. Don't intimidate, don't raise your voice, don't yell, don't hit, obviously. I mean, that's, that goes without saying. I think that's going to have an enormous impact on the way things work in the long run. I think that we need to show the happiness that can come, the joy, the deep, powerful joy that can come out of living a free life where you don't aggress against people. Uh, we can't aggress against the state. That's just, you know, as a suicide, of course. But you can show people how wonderful a life can be of non-aggression and, and property rights. You can make predictions which hopefully will cement your validity or the validity of your ideas in people's minds as you are progressively more and more correct. And uh, hopefully being able to predict it makes, it makes your perspective more valuable and then people will start to listen a little bit. If you know people who are being aggressive with their kids and you feel that it's safe and positive to do so, you can talk to them about this and tell them, look, you know, spanking increases aggression, spanking reduces IQ, uh, spanking provokes bullying. Uh, these are all very well demonstrated scientifically. And uh, uh, so you can help out that way. And I think through that process, we will build this inexorable rising tide that will leave, lift the boats of even the people who kind of want to stay behind in a more aggressive world. It will be irresistible, I think, as it moves forward. We'll get fewer criminals, fewer people with political lust for power, uh, people will experience, children will experience better playtime with other children and less of a need to feel aggressive or defensive or, or guard their, their stuff and so on. And so I think that in that kind of positivity and optimism, we will simply outgrow the state. You know, like a, a spaceship breaking orbit and heading off to the stars will simply outgrow this ancient tyranny through peace and happiness that begins in the areas that we can affect, which is our personal relationships, our family relationships, our, our friendships, our business relationships. These are the relationships we can affect. And it is through that scaffolding, I think, that we build this cathedral called the future. That's really powerful stuff. And you've already made a difference uh, with me. I've uh, paid attention. I, I never had much interest, uh, to be honest, in uh, child rearing or anything along those lines. I never had a kid till recently. And uh, recently, uh, my wife basically uses a little bit of a spanking every now and then on, uh, on our son uh, to get him in line. And after reading your stuff, I, I had a talk with her one day and I said, you know, uh, we shouldn't be using violence against these children to do anything. We should negotiate. And she didn't really understand what I, I meant at first, as many people probably don't, because many people grew up with this sort of paradigm of, well, you do something wrong, you get spanked as a kid. But very quickly, I, I had to actually show her. I just used a few of the techniques I had read about uh, from what you had written or what you had said. And uh, she went to hit him and I said, stop for a second. And I went up to him and I said, listen, you're crying, you want something, and she wants you to stop crying. 
let's do this. I'll give you this if you give me that. And it's, it's perfect. It's negotiation. And that's what anarchy is. That's what free markets is. That's what capitalism is. And it works. It works like a charm. And it's amazing. And she's already uh, uh, stopped doing anything like that. And uh, it's yeah. amazing uh, what a great difference it can make. And uh, so, yeah, I, I know you're making a big difference. And I really want to make sure that I can do whatever I can to get your word out there more. Uh, can you just let our audience know uh, how they can uh, get uh, more from Stefan Molyneux? Sure, and um, thank you so much for sharing that story. And with you know, even without even the slightest hint of any kind of condescension, mwah, tell your wife that what I think she's doing is wonderful and beautiful. And what you're doing, of course, uh, when you're a parent, you're just bigger than your kids. All you're teaching them is that size might makes right, so to speak, which is the exact opposite of what we want to teach as anarchists. So I hugely applaud you and your wife. And oh, that's great stuff. Yeah, I'm at I'm at freedomainradio.com. You can go to youtube.com forward slash freedomainradio for videos. And um, everything I do is uh, pretty much free. Uh, for books are all free. Videos are all free. There's a message board with like 11,000 people uh, chatting about freedom. So anybody who wants to join in the conversation, I do a Sunday show, a call-in show. Uh, Sunday's 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Just go to the Freedom Aid Radio chat room to, uh, to join in. If you have questions or comments or criticisms, always love to be improved uh, upon if I can be. So that, that's how to contact me. And thanks again for that story. That just made my day. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you. And uh, I know I'm going to be seeing you in October at uh, Libertopia in San Diego, October, I believe, 21st, 22nd. Is that right? Do you know uh, the dates offhand? Yes. I know you're a busy guy. But it's I around, think so, yeah. It's and I'll be, in New York, uh, I'll be in New York September the 10th at Liberty Fest 2. Okay, great. Yeah, and you're the, uh, the Toastmaster or Master of Ceremonies or whatever they call them? I hope I get a cape. I, I, really, I really, I want a cape and tights uh, because that seems like a superhero to me, but we'll find out. Well, I hope you don't do that. I, I don't want to see that at all. <laughs> but uh, it's been really great to have you on the show. It's a real honor. And thank you very much. Stefan Molyneux, Freedom Radio. Thank you. Peace. Thank you, Jeff. My pleasure. Anarchy. Thank you.